0: You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So I don't have any relevant relationships with industry in terms of viral exanthems. Um, so viral exanthems, if nothing else, are, uh, you know, uh, my residents accuse me of using the term viral exanthem for all the rashes that I don't know what they are. And, uh, and so hopefully after this talk, you all will feel empowered to do that exact same thing because they're, they're kind of right. Actually, a lot of the time. Um, this is one of the most common forms of viral exanthem that we see in practice. So this is uh, my son, and I noticed, you know, my, or my wife noticed that he's running around our cul-de-sac, and she's like, he's got this really weird rash. What do you think it is? And, and so I had a look at it, and I'm like, I think it's viral. And she's like, well, which virus is it? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and, and she's like, well, do we need to do anything? I'm like, I don't think so. And... Uh, You know, it'd kind of get lighter, and then it'd get darker again. She's like, "Is he getting sick?" I said, "No, I don't think so." But, uh, and then it kind of went away, and I never really knew what it was. And so, um, sometimes viruses, viruses, and virus rashes do that. But it's a it's a very very powerful tool to have a wonderful term like viral exanthem for uh, all these situations that you find yourself in as a as sort of a way to get yourself out the door if need be. But I think we should always start with the definition of terms. What is an exanthem? An exanthem is a cutaneous eruption that occurs as a symptom of a general disease. Uh, usually we think of this as something infectious, in truth drug reactions are exanthems, although many drug reactions are probably also viral exanthems. if you really want to dig down into the pathomechanism of things. The, the less commonly used term enanthem just refers to the same process but occurs in effectively internally or in this case on a mucosal surface, so uh, in the genital area or in the mouth. So we're going to start uh, with this case of a seven-year-old child. Parents report that he's been feeling bad uh, for a few days. He's had a uh, cough and these red watery eyes and a runny nose as well as a fever. And then he's now developed this rash It started on his head and is now spread everywhere. So what do we think this is? yell it out measles Measles. that's very good so that is indeed what it is Um, so measles has had a resurgence and I I think it's well worth talking about and well worth leading off with because about oh I don't know eight nine maybe ten years ago now I was giving a version of this talk at a pediatrics conference in Vermont and the people putting on that conference were some of the most prominent pediatricians in the country. The, the namesake of the conference was actually the man who started the entire field of neonatology, this incredibly famous pediatrician. It was an amazing honor to meet him and, and he, he, he said, John, I'm really excited for your talk. What are you talking about again? I said, viral exanthems." And he said, well I hope you're not talking about stuff like measles that nobody sees anymore. And I was like, ugh, I was gonna lead with that. but. Uh, um, And and in truth, this is why I've always kept it in my talks, and and I'm I'm, disappointed to say that I've been vindicated because it's these kinds of conditions that I would not seen during my training that we thought were eradicated that are now coming back. And it just goes to, it speaks to the power of the vaccination routines that we've had in place previously and what happens when those become more porous or not utilized as much. So 2019, there have been at least 1,250 cases. This is a little kiddo from Kansas City. Uh, This year's outbreaks were primarily in unvaccinated communities in New York. This is the most number of cases in the United States since the year 2000 when measles was officially declared extinct in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, The cases that have occurred this year have been linked to Israel, Ukraine, and the Philippines. And again, most are in unvaccinated children. About 119 of these patients were hospitalized. 61 had complications including pneumonia and encephalitis. So here you can see the big spike that occurred earlier in the year. And these are the states where the different outbreaks occurred. The thing about measles is, is that once you start getting an outbreak, it moves around a bit. And we had some cases there in Missouri as well. And here's just the, uh, the little statistics of our big spike this past year. So. Let's review and talk about measles just a little bit. So measles, a fancy name is rubiola. It's a paramyxovirus, and we are the natural host and reservoir of measles. It replicates in respiratory epithelial cells, spreads from there to the lymphoid tissue, and then you become viremic, and it spreads around your body. It spreads from person to person through respiratory droplets. It is one of the most contagious diseases known. It takes uh, less than 10 viral particles to trigger an infection. It can live for up to two hours in the airspace where somebody has just coughed or sneezed, and that's why it is so contagious. It's why the outbreaks that we had some years back at a certain theme park in California spread like wildfire it's why when a patient with measles uh, with a, from a measles endemic area comes through a major airport and sneezes their way down uh, you know down the uh, the gateway uh, it is or sneezes their way through the flight it is an enormously worrisome situation there's a prodrome uh, fever and just like the case that that I demonstrated, there's fever, dry cough, nasal congestion, and especially this rhinoconjunctivitis—really runny nose, really red eyes. So um, you know, I guess you'd want to ask if they were on dupilumab if they came in with red eyes. But uh, um, in this case, uh, it's going to be a little different. The enanthem, the classic enanthem of measles is the so-called coplic spots, which are these sort of gray-white papules on the lining of the mouth. These show up a day or two before the skin rash, so if you're in the middle of a measles outbreak and there's a child that has the right prodromal symptoms, sometimes you can look inside their mouth and see the internal rash before the external rash is started. The classic measles exanthem shows up over two to four days. Classically, it starts around the hairline or behind the ears. You'll see these uh, red uh, macules and papules that then begin to spread down the body in a cephalocaudad fashion. The rash will last for about five days and then begin to fade in the same order in which it appeared. I like to keep a lot of these pictures in the talk, partly because uh, how, how many folks here have seen a case of measles? Yeah that's exactly right a few but just very few hands and um, and I think that that is the reason to be aware of what it looks like because the problem with measles is the, the problem that I've had with measles is that and why I've always kept it in this presentation is that over the years I've certainly walked into exam rooms and seen patients with these really striking bright red rashes spreading all over their body, and yet those patients didn't have measles. They've got some other virus that makes a similar rash. The rash itself is, is, it's a classic rash, but only in the setting of a world where measles is in it or in the setting of an outbreak. So I think it's important for us to be aware of what it looks like, and this is a case from Germany during an outbreak that they had there some years ago. Why do we care about measles? I mean, we don't see it anymore. Most people don't get it, and even in the old days when people did get it, most of them got better. Well, that's true if you happen to live in a developed country. So measles in developed countries, even many of the cases that happened this year, most of the patients do well and even though a small percentage of them end up hospitalized, most of those patients do okay. Mortality rate's about one out of every thousand cases in a developed country. But in developing countries, it's five to 10%. And this is what led to widespread vaccination campaigns, especially in Africa, that started in the year 2000 and progressed through the, the first part of the of the 2000s. The incidence of measles in Africa plummeted due to these vaccination campaigns. Then due to political unrest, the the pipelines of distribution of the vaccines were disrupted, they were not administered, and all of a sudden measles started to climb back up. Democratic Republic of the Congo, I think, uh, right now, there just a, was an article out, they've had 5,000 cases so far, and they've got the um, one of the worst outbreaks that has happened on Earth in recent years, and it's happening right now and in these places in these developing countries it's a much more mortal disease and that's because in the when it occurs in settings of malnutrition or or other um, stressors you have a much higher rate of post measles secondary infection measles is very immunosuppressive so when you get the rash when you're infected with it it's not usually the measles that kills you it's the fact that you end up with a secondary bacterial pneumonia or other infections that that Um, cause the mortality. That's why uh, in many of these areas supplementing with vitamin A can make you more resistant to measles. That's one of the vitamin A deficiency is one of the things that that predisposes you to mortality. If you ever wonder a little bit about it or you're ever thinking oh I don't know maybe maybe vaccination is not that not that important to do I would urge you to read this article which um is interesting because it reports the it's the journal of the preacher cotton mather from boston in the early 1700s and he describes an outbreak of measles that hit boston that year and it is it's heart-wrenching to read because he he literally goes through very measured as measles starts not not only taking the lives of his parishioners and people that he knew, but then hits his family, and then individual members of his family start to die. It's a, it's a really, for something that's 300 plus years old, it's a, it's a devastating read. Um, the measles genotypes, the original types of measles that we had in the Americas and Australia are extinct. So all the measles that's occurring now are, are being imported from Europe and Asia something to that speaks both to the power of the vaccination campaigns and then what happens when when um, they're not followed through with current outbreaks most of the patients that are affected come from those endemic areas and most of them were unvaccinated so what do we know until there's better vaccination campaigns we will have measles it will keep showing up because with modern air travel you can you can be just beginning to get sick and get on a plane in Singapore fly to uh, fly to a major sporting event and share the measles love with everybody that's there so um, it's very very important to keep up with I'm I'm still not going to say which theme park it was (laughs) very very important to keep up with that so to that end, here's another case. So this is a, a um, let's say, it's probably a 13-month-old child who presents with this, I hope, hopefully it's projecting okay, these sort of red um, macules and maculopapules scattered over the trunk. They kind of have shown up over the last few days. And I'm wondering if anybody out there is willing to be brave enough to tell me what they think this rash is. And you're gonna to have to yell because I can't hear very good. Too many years of rock and roll. Anybody? Rosiola, great guess. That is actually, rosiola is the most logical guess because in a viral exanthem talk, you always start with measles and then the next thing you'll go to is something like Roseola. <laughs> so I, I always tell people, and, and any of my former residents who are here will remember, we always use the whole slide. Always use the whole slide. Anything else in the picture besides the red rash that anybody notices? Pityriasis. Great guess. Not scaly. This rash. No herald patch. Kind of young. Gianni crosti What's that? Reaction to vaccination. What makes you say that? Right. Good. You use the whole slide. That's right. And so. Um, this is, this is my middle daughter after she got uh, a vaccine that most kids get at one year of age, right around a year of age. Which vaccine is that? The MMR vaccine, very good. So, let's see, I'm pointing at the wrong one. I had a question, but I don't know. All right. So my question for you all is which component of the MMR vaccine typically causes these types of reactions, rashes or fevers? <laughs> Austin Powers, very good. Um, so. Great, then, it's a good, then it was a good question. So preservatives, that's a great guess. I, I always thought it was either that, or uh, back in the day, I thought it was rubella. I thought it was rubella, but it's actually measles. Measles is the, um, is the main uh, active factor in the vaccine that causes both rash and fever. So that is, that's the kind of measles that most of us see. She'd gotten the vaccine, she was really crabby for a few days, that spot on her thigh that you so astutely picked up was rock hard. A big, big nodule in her thigh. She had a major, major reaction. And then she breaks out in this rash. And so, um, anyhow, just to be aware of that. Next, I've got. I want to talk briefly about mumps. Now mumps is another very, very contagious viral illness. It's a purely human disease. You get, uh, it's also respiratory droplet spread. Um, It can be a little bit slower after you get exposed to it before you start getting sick. Uh, The viremia tends to show up after 12 to 25 days. It spreads to multiple tissues. Uh, The thing that's, uh, but then it will spread into those, the parotid gland or the salivary glands giving you the, the classic look of mumps. Now why talk about mumps? Same reason in a, in a way, but but slightly different that we want to talk about measles. Mumps is back and it 's spreading there there 's an increasing incidence. The difference in mumps is it 's tending to show up in slightly older populations so greater than 20 year olds um, and sort of 20, 30 year olds where the, the a lot of the time the uh, robustness of the immune response from the MMR vaccine is is waning and the problem with mumps is you can be infectious from two days before you have any symptoms to about five days after the onset so some years ago in Canada they were having widespread mumps outbreaks in colleges and, and in a, uh, areas like Montreal and, and Toronto where they had a lot of young professionals and so they actually came up with a a educational campaign to try and remind these young people that if they felt bad or if they thought they might have the mumps that they don't want to get out and spread it to everybody else and so what I've always thought was funny about this educational campaign um, is that they they seem to feel like there was a re, there was there would be gender gender differences in terms of the motivations so for, for, for the female you know 20 and 30 year olds it's you know Jill got the mumps and then Jill partied with her friends now all her friends hate her right so Jill's going to be motivated because she might spread mumps to her friends but apparently for males that is not the motivating factor and they thought only this only this would work okay but in, in, in seriousness, so if you pay attention to the news, I mean, mumps outbreaks happen quite, uh, are, have been happening with greater frequency. They're happening in professional sports teams. They're happening on college campuses. I gave this talk just about a little less than three weeks ago to the pediatrics department of the university, and, and, I, and I made this point that we need to be aware of mumps. We need to think about it. The very next day, an, an email came out with a letter from the uh, Missouri Department of Health alerting campuses to some cases of mumps that have been diagnosed, including a couple on our campus. We haven't had a big outbreak yet, but we need to be aware of it. So uh, here, uh, just a list so you can see. You can see how it cycles from year to year, but these are some of the, uh, we've had more, a couple years recently where the number of mumps cases has been increasing. And these are different states where, where it's shown up. So this is, this is what mumps looks like, just as a brief reminder. The is the fairly nonspecific. You get the viremia, and then you get this sudden onset of the glandular swelling, most commonly of the parotid gland. It's 30 to 40% of patients will get it. It can be unilateral or bilateral only case that I've ever seen that was classic mumps was unilateral so that's kind of striking Uh, the salivary glands can also be affected and it tends to go away over about 10 days most importantly and that last line on the slide is one of the most important things that I think I can share with you 20% of mumps infections are completely asymptomatic you get it you're viremic you're contagious and you don't feel bad at all you don't have a fever you don't have any reaction that is true of many viral infections which is why the that's why the whole term viral exanthem is actually a powerful thing because you'll you'll walk into a room and you'll see a kid that looks for all the world like they've got a viral rash and and the mom's like but i don't understand she's been perfectly healthy she's not got a cough or a runny nose and that's that's what this data arms you with that gives you that power to be able to say well actually a lot of the time we get viruses and we never even know we're sick sometimes the only sign that they're fighting off a virus is the skin rash that they get but it's also a problem when you've got diseases that are this contagious um, I'll, I'll gloss over the, the complications of mumps the the orchitis is a real deal um, and can be quite problematic um, it, however the incidence of true sterility after mumps is fairly rare uh, mumps it can cause deafness and uh, a variety of other complications and so it is not a, a trivial infection although most patients do well okay uh, this is a, a two-year-old that I saw some years ago now uh, referred to me from urgent care for suspected hand foot and mouth disease the baby was previously healthy Uh, the rash has been spreading over the last few days and of course there's a language barrier the family Swahili speaking so here is the rash on the hands hopefully it's projecting all right for you guys can you see that then the rash on the feet Rash in the sort of the perioral area and around the nose, as well as scattered a little bit about the face, and then in the genital area as well. And so I'm wondering if anybody wants to hazard a guess, or at least throw out some possibilities about what they think this rash might be. Just if you if you if you're brave enough, yell loud. I can't. My hearing is terrible. What's that? Coxsackie virus, great. Anything else that should be in the differential? Syphilis. Well, nice, good. <laughs> you guys are just getting ready for Rosen, aren't you? Like. <laughs> All right, good. This, I, what I see here are umbilicated vesicles. Does that trigger you to put anything else in your differential? What's that? Uh, Right, so herpes virus. I heard molluscum. Good. So I think in this day and age when I saw this child I thought this child had herpes virus. I thought this was eczema herpeticum, and I put the child on acyclovir I swabbed these and the swab was negative for viral culture and the PCR was negative and this and then uh, over the next week or two and the child gradually got better. It sure didn't seem like the acyclovir did that much. Over the next few weeks, we had more and more cases. These kids would come in with these really amazing bullous reactions on their hands and feet that just were, Look, I, I remember telling my residents, I'm like, this is like hand, foot, and mouth disease, but another version of the virus. Like, this is an incredibly intense uh, outbreak. It's not run-of-the-mill hand, foot, and mouth disease. and that's indeed what it was. So it is Coxsackie virus. Um, good call. Uh, this is Coxsackie A6. How many of you have see, are seen Coxsackie A6 nowadays? It's, it's out there in the communities. It's, it comes through. Some years it's a little more than others. We had a little mini outbreak this year. And so, the thing to know is that this is a cousin, in a way, of the viruses that cause hand, foot, and mouth disease. But it is very much its own thing. It actually was reported in Taiwan in 2010 with with patients being affected by outbreaks, such as you see here, with these really, really intense vesicular eruptions. One of the things that's quite striking about Coxsackie A6 is it is very onychotropic. So hand, foot, and mouth disease in general, we've known can periodically uh, lead to shedding of the nails. This particular Coxsackie virus is much more onychotropic. So the incidence of nail loss or nail shedding after an infection is, is 20, 30%. Some colleagues of mine in pediatric dermatology got together and summarized all the forms Of rashes that they'd seen with Coxsackie a6 virus in this publication and I think that it's important for you to be aware that it can manifest in a couple different ways you can have the classic sort of vesicular eruption that the thing to know about this version of Coxsackie virus is the it tends to be a much more widespread skin eruption than is typical for standard hand foot and mouth disease they'll have a few lesions in the mouth but much more intense skin involvement the vesicles can be umbilicated, they can look for all the world like herpes virus. If you, and, I, and this is one of my teaching points, if you for any reason are worried that the child might have herpes virus, you should just go ahead and treat them prophylactically with acyclovir until you get your testing results back. The, we've seen a number of children with these really pronounced very large acrobola. That is a variant that you can see, especially in younger infants that get this. And then in children that have pre-existing eczema, you can see tropism of the virus to those areas of eczema, just like you can get eczema herpeticum. My colleagues came up with the term eczema coxsackium for the areas where, where the virus is so intense. And then in some children, sometimes older children, you'll actually see true petechia or purpura, especially in the acral areas. This is a virus that not all of us have seen so because it's a new virus this uh, unlike hand foot and mouth disease where the children tend to get it and their caregivers don't this is a virus that their parents can get and sometimes it's more severe in the adults we've had a few adults end up in the hospital just for supportive care till they get over it and just as a uh, to contrast this is sort of what standard hand foot and mouth disease looks like the, the, exan- the exanthem the of hand foot and mouth disease will be these little gunmetal gray Vesicles tending to orient along the the um, skin lines. Um, very few, not terribly symptomatic. The more symptomatic part is the oral is the oral mucosal involvement. Sort of flipped from what A6 does. And always remember, just like I said, it's, A6 is an is a virus. So you will save yourself a lot of phone calls if you make the diagnosis. If you just incorporate into your teaching that. That you just warn the parents ahead of time there's a chance that over the next few weeks that all the you know that you may notice some or all of the finger and toenails coming off it freaks people out but they grow up they grow back just fine alright this 10 year old female presents with the rash that you see here on her cheeks and arms what do people think good so this is fifth disease or parvovirus B19 erythema infectiosum. So it is this is actually not true there's a, there's now another parvovirus known to infect people but it's very very rare so not nothing to really worry about. Parvoviruses are really really small DNA viruses and this this particular parvovirus is, is while it's a cousin of the one that the dogs get it's not it does not come from dogs it's people to people. Um, It's uh, spread also through respiratory droplets. One thing I didn't know until years ago when I first started speaking on this is that there do tend to be uh, community kind of epidemics in a seasonal cycling to parvovirus. It tends to peak in the winter and the spring and individual community epidemics will occur about every six years and then uh, they'll last for three to six months. These trends, it's one of those things I've always been interested to see with with the changes that are occurring if we see that also change over time clicker and I are having there we go so there can be a mild prodrome a variable an anthem but the classic thing for parvo is the is the exanthem. The classic exanthem is erythema infectiosum which you picked right right up on. It starts with these sort of slap cheeks. That this t- the slap cheeks tend to occur in younger children. You'll get this these bright red cheeks with this sparing of the perinasal skin. And then the rash will morph over a few days into this lacy reticulate red rash that runs along the extremities. The cheeks will fade away and the extremities rash will then last for one to three weeks. One of the most important things, just like my son at the very beginning of the talk, one of the most important things to to warn parents about with this rash is that it tends to go through cycles where it will fade and then it will darken up again. Parents will see it fading and think, oh, she's getting better, and then the child will run outside, get all hot and sweaty, and the rash gets more pronounced again. It's just a, a vascular phenomenon. It has nothing to do with the actual underlying rash, but you'll save yourself a lot of phone calls if you, if you warn parents about that ahead of time. This is hard to see, these Venn diagrams, but the point of, the point of including parvo, almost everybody gets parvo, right? They, they get the rash, the classic slap cheeks. The, part of, the reason to put it in here is the other types of rashes that parvo can cause. And I think it's, it's more and more becoming recognized, the different man, ways that parvovirus infection can manifest on the skin, and I want you all to be aware of it. So, one of the things that Parvo can do is, it, it is probably one of the major, if not the major, viral cause of petechial or purpuric viral eruptions and I don't know if any of you if when you've seen these pictures any of you will be like boy I did see somebody like that but I certainly have during my career these are the patients where they're they're not really that sick but you walk in the room and you're like holy smoke you're covered with like bruises and and this this really really striking rash and you and you're left doing doing what I told you at the beginning going well I think it's viral but uh, now you can say it with a little more confidence. So this was a, one paper that was put out there uh, talking about uh, the petechial eruptions that you can see with parvovirus. And in this particular group of patients, um, it, it, in, uh, of 17 cases that had a similar morphology of rash with fever and a purpuric eruption, 13 uh, had, had proof positive serology and viral uh, a PCR for parvovirus. And interestingly sometimes these patients will start with this and then they'll go into a more traditional fifth disease phenotype later. Probably what you're seeing here is different differences either in the then the genetic hardwiring of the patients in terms of how they what type of immune response they have to these viruses so while most patients in, at a young age will give you sort of a standard fifth disease response Others at different ages will give you a, a more aggressive, particular purpuric response, but we don't know. And here are some other um, PCR-positive cases, just so you can see quite just how striking it can be. And I've certainly seen patients just like these two photos on the right, with these big, almost purpuric uh, patches on the skin. now we let's see there we go so we've known for a while that parvovirus can cause this variant rash that we call papular and purpuric gloves and sock syndrome where patients get a get a swelling redness and petechia or purpura of the hands and the feet this is a variation of parvovirus infection the thing that's interesting about papular purpuric gloves and socks syndrome is that we parvovirus, the standard erythema infectiosum rash, by the time you get that you're no longer contagious. The very fact that you get the rash means that your immune response is kicked in and you're no longer viremic. However, uh, we think that many patients who manifest this morphology of parvovirus rash are actually still potentially contagious when the rash is present. And here are just a few more pictures of that so that you can sort of see what it looks like sometimes quite striking cut off on the hands and the feet okay so you get these pictures from a very worried um, family or parent Um, the child has this rash that's sort of spreading uh, with with an associated fever and some joint swelling uh, sometimes doesn't want to get up and walk and I'm curious what you all would the would call this HSP okay good we'll talk about it, it isn't but we'll talk about that that's that's good other thoughts Do we notice on some of the lesions, it's hard, I'm not sure, it's I can't see it quite as well from where you guys are. In some of the centers of these, they look almost dusky. Do you guys see that? All right. Well, I won't belabor it, but this is what I call a serum sickness-like reaction, or some people term it urticaria multiforme. Now, I think this is a really, really important concept that I wanna, I wanna get across to y'all because this is one of the rashes that I see very commonly misdiagnosed. And it, the most common misdiagnosis that I see, and often it comes from the pediat- pediatricians, is they'll call this erythema multiforme. Because these spots, as you, if you look at them, they'll spread and they'll often have a red ring and then a dusky center. And so they get called target lesions. And they get, the parents then get told, well I think your child has erythema multiforme, this can be really severe. We need to hospitalize the child, or we need to do a bunch of workup. And the parents get on the internet, and they Google erythema multiforme, and they freak out, and they see Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and all this, all this fear happens. And this is nothing like that. This is, a, uh, this is much more like hives serum sickness-like reaction and really what you're seeing here if you biopsy the skin what what histologically what you see is is changes that look similar to a hive those dusky areas are probably just a little bit of vascular sludging due to the swelling in the tissue because these although these don't move quite as fast as standard urticaria within a day or two individual spots will have will be gone and they really don't leave bruising behind they'll leave behind a little duskiness that'll fade in a day or two way too fast for a bruise so the, if histologically the reaction that's happening here is completely the opposite of what you would see with erythema multiforme. It's much more like a hive. Now why do I have this in a viral exanthem talk? It, because serum sickness-like reaction, that term comes from the fact that it was recognized many many years ago when horse serums of various sorts were used as a therapy that patients would develop an immune reaction to those horse serums and they would get a syndrome where they got fever and they got this very striking rash and some joint swelling so that was called a serum sickness reaction then decades later with the advent of, of more and more antibiotics there were certain antibiotics like there's one notorious for this called C-chlor C- that when children were given C-chlor they might have an ear infection or the like they would break out in a rash that looked very similar to the serum sickness rashes that people had seen decades before so that was called a serum sickness like reaction it's like in a hypersensitivity reaction or an allergic reaction so the thing that was even more interesting so it was it's always thought that this was due to a drug or an antibiotic that the child was put on but in in more Recent times, we've done away with this idea that every child with an otitis needs to be put on antibiotics. So, with greater antibiotic stewardship, there are children who may have a have a low-grade fever or a, a viral otitis who have not seen a single antibiotic and they still break out in this exact same rash. And that's where the term urticaria multiforme came from. A good friend of mine coined that term. It's very accurate. I just don't love it because it's got multiforme in it, which is now a buzzword for it makes people think of erythema multiforme. So what is this really? Well, this is a viral, to me, a viral syndrome. It's very characteristic. If if you've not seen it, you're going to at some time. It's not rare. These children typically have a low-grade fever, this very, very striking rash, the kind that stops you in your tracks when you walk in the room. Oftentimes they'll get swelling around certain joints that comes and goes if they're walking if they're old enough to be walking they'll stop walking which really scares the parents but they're not having actual arthritis they're just having swelling around their joints or of their feet that makes them uncomfortable when they take steps and so that's what prompts them to uh, to uh, not weight-bear like they normally do the the big clue that you're dealing with this too is as striking as the children look, as you watch them, they look perfectly happy. They've got, their rash is scary but they're, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they'll play with you and they'll talk to you. They might not want to st- weight bear on the foot that's swollen at the moment, but they're, they're not sick. And this tends to go away over a few days. So I think it's a concept that uh, is very, very important to be aware of because you really can save a lot of angst and worry for families by being aware of this diagnosis. Um, see did I forget anything oh so what really is this what's the deal with the serum sickness like part well I think of this this is Dyer's hypothesis so um, there'll be a few of those so take it for what it's worth but I think of this a lot like I think of the rash with mono so Epstein-Barr virus that causes mono in its native state will 10 15 percent of the time cause a rash but if I take that same patient and I give them amoxicillin or ampicillin, about 90% of those patients will get a rash. So again, the viral, and it takes the viral infection, tweaking the immune system the right way, plus the antibiotic to get the rash. And I think that's, in a way, kind of what's going on here. You've got some sort of preceding viral infection that's revved the immune system up, and then the drug exposure that comes, that when it does occur, potentiates that. So, which of course then begs the question, so say this is a child with an otitis who got put on amoxicillin and broke out in this rash. Is the child allergic to amoxicillin? Can the child get amoxicillin again? The truth is we don't know, but the data data is favorable in that regard. Meaning, you know, a year from now, when the child's got a different kind of infection, you might be able to give the child amoxicillin and have no problems at all okay Um, this is a let's say gotta think about this eight-year-old who comes in with these red very itchy spots that are starting on the feet and spreading up the legs and also on the on the hands spreading up the arms now when, when they first started, the, the patient's mother uh, brought the child to me and said, you know, what do you think about this rash? I said, well, you know, it's pretty itchy, it's probably bites. It's summertime, the child's been out, outside. And, um, and the, they started some topical steroids, then it spread, it started to get worse. And I don't know if you all can notice here on the picture of the wrist, but you might notice there that it's these spots are not only red and with a, sort of a ring shape, but they've got a dusky center. And so the patient's mother happened to be a physician and uh, says, well, but aren't these turning into target lesions? And I'm like, well, they're target-toid-ish, atypically. Um, but, and and the, the physician mom's like, well, doesn't that mean it's erythema multiforme? And I said, yeah, I don't think it's erythema multiforme. And the mom's like, but why is it not erythema multiforme? I mean, is my child sick? And I said, no, I don't think so. And she's like, well, do you know? And I said, no, I mean, she seems very healthy. And And then I kid you not, my wife says to me, do you think we should get a second opinion? And I said, no dear, but I still don't know what it is. So then um, it spread up. this is my oldest daughter, so you've now seen all three of my kids. Um, uh, and so this rash spreads upper legs, and, I, and mind you, at this point I did not quite know what it was. And then I kid you not, two days later, three days later, after that, that horribly you know, emasculating conversation with my spouse. Um, A a local pulmonary doc sends me this picture of his son, and he's like, what do you think this is? He just went and saw another dermatologist in town to have these spots treated, and now he's broken out in this rash. He's got a rash on his cheeks, on his elbows, on his knees, on his hands and feet, and he's got these red bumps all over his ears and his cheeks. the, the common ground here, and all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, the, the rash that he's got on his arms looks just like Grace's rash. And it's itchy, and he's not really sick, and his, his, over a few days, his started to get a little targetoid looking too. And they both at the time had molluscum. And the pulmonologist's son had gone to see a dermatologist and been treated with cantharone. And so I, I put this, this case in here because what I'm trying to highlight is some um, Viral exanthems that you might not think about, but yet aren't super rare. In this case, it's The teaching point is to be aware that molluscum can cause a variety of odd rashes, so uh, molluscum in the literature has been reported in association with erythema multiforme or erythema multiforme like rashes. It's been um, uh, reported with what's called an id reaction or a Giannotti-Crosti like reaction and that's really what the pulmonologist's son had. All those red bumps on the ears, on the cheeks, on the, you know. Giannotti Crosti is papular acrodermatitis of childhood so it's arms and legs sparing the trunk. And so that's really what this is. They're all probably variants of the same thing and it's it's one type of exanthem that you can see in response to molluscum. So when the immune system starts picking up on that molluscum virus living there on the skin as you you can get a variety of different immune responses. Molluscum itself is probably inherently immunosuppressive. It probably suppresses the local immunity where it's growing and actually like like we were talking about in the last talk it probably shifts it to a more th2 type response because it's that th1 cell mediated response that tends to be antiviral and so that's why you can see the little molluscum dermatitis showing up around molluscum bumps but eventually the immune system starts switching on and developing a more aggressive antiviral response and this is one of the one of the manifestations that that can take. The good news is usually when this happens the the, while it's the interesting thing about these viral rashes is they're usually relatively difficult to treat so my daughter uh, her itching was only barely improved by using relatively strong topical steroids it was a very intense reaction but it tends to blow over of its own accord and then after that the molluscum go away and they're better and so What it reminded me, what it had made me think of, was a picture like this one. Notice the lesion on the patient's finger there. And then this patient developed a secondary rash, which then progressed into more of a classic targetoid erythema multiforme type rash. Anybody want to, for the bonus points, want to tell me what the lesion on the finger is? What's that? Whitlow. Whitlow, great guess. Great guess, actually. It's not, but great guess. Because this is. Oh, I think I heard it. What would you say? Yell it out! I swear somebody said it. Orf. Yes. So what were they? What were they raising? Sheep. Sheep. Yeah. So this is a every now and then in Missouri we end up with a patient somebody coming in with ORF it's usually one of the vet students or one of the veterinarians but ORF is one of the ORF is also caused by pox viruses just like molluscum and has been reported in association with erythema multiforme okay so that's the end of the talk and now I've got a few questions just for you all to see um, who was listening I guess So, this question, good, the responses are already going. I don't even know if I have to do anything. (laughs) Haha, awesome. Thank you all for listening. I don't know if I'm supposed to be reading these or not. Should I read them? Okay. A child presents with loss of multiple finger and toenails over the past few days. What is the likely cause? A. Coxsackie A6 virus, B. Human papillomavirus, C. Parvovirus, D. Varicella, or E. Adenovirus. Well Mumford. Good. And which of the following is one of the most contagious diseases known to man? A. measles, B. parvo, C. rubella, D. adeno, or E. varicella? Excellent. You guys are like A-plus students. All right. Any questions? Oh, I guess we got to do that first. The overall performance of the speaker. I mean, I'm expecting to be neck and neck with Rosen, if not ahead. <laughs> but then, if I get ahead, will he bite my neck? <laughs> How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Let's see. Was the reaction to MMR a type four hypersensitivity reaction to the measles component of the vaccine? It's actually, I mean, it's more complex than that. It's actually, you know, MMR is a live virus vaccine, so actually that is the vaccine strain of measles causing a low-grade infection. And so the, now the, the reaction on the leg may well have been a, a real deep inflammatory kind of type four reaction. Um, uh, definitely sort of a cell mediated response. But it, the, the, the actual fever and rash that most kids get is due to the virus itself. How long is someone with measles infectious after symptom onset? So they're infectious and t- so the truth is all these numbers that you read are a little are a little suspect, so because with the testing that we 've got, one of the things to realize is that you know you were determined to be infectious or not based on whether it was clear that you passed the infection on to somebody else. These things were determined a hundred or more years ago, but now we know, for example, that patients with viral uh, conditions that we thought for sure after X stage of the of the disease that they were no longer infectious, but actually, if you if you swab them or test them, they're still shedding live virus. So it's it's more complex than that. But in general, once the rash, patients with uh, how long? Has somebody, uh, yeah, so patients with measles are infectious uh, at least until the rash clears. Just had a case, a severe, 25 year old. Huh. Yeah, the, I, so it's a great question in terms of ordering the A6. I, I, I don't know. Back in the day, I think, I think there was some stuff with CDC there where we send a few things off, and I know that the folks with the, um, with the paper would send things off to CDC. I don't tend to send it off anymore. Um, I just make a more of a clinical diagnosis. What I will say to, to that end, though, so the testing... I don't know if your patient really had all those different types of enterovirus. The the testing, some of the PCR tests that we do really are, um, they're not, you know, you'd like to think that it's pure and that you do the test and it'll tell you 100% of the time, you'd think the way PCR works, okay, if they've got A6, it'll be positive, and if they don't have A6, it'll be negative, but it's not, a lot of the tests are kind of messy. Some of the PCRs are better than others, and the truth is I'm not enough of an expert to speak to you know, how good all those different tests are. What I can say in at in our institution about the the most common viral test that we get is a respiratory viral panel, where children will come in with some type of, uh, of um, Uh, pulmonary or upper respiratory lower respiratory infection uh, and they'll get screened with this panel. One of the things that's been really interesting is it is not unusual to have kids test positive for more than one virus at that. We've had kids with two, three at the same time and in truth I I actually buy that. Now I don't know about your particular case here but I actually think that you that that can happen because we know very well from other infectious diseases that a preceding infection with disease A can then predispose you to getting disease B. A lot like measles can predispose you to getting bacterial infections afterwards. The the effects on your immune system from one, that's one of the reasons why people think that you'll see outbreaks of zoster because it's likely that there's a virus that's moving through the community. It's why you'll see outbreaks sometimes in nursing homes. There's a virus that moves through that that then Tweaks the immune system in a way to make it more likely for the varicella to reactivate. There, it's a, the, our immunity, the way our immune systems interact with these viruses, is incredibly, incredibly complex. Way more complex than we've thought about it all these years. And, and it, you know, it's the same thing like with dress syndrome, where we think dress syndrome in many cases is actually a medication-triggered res- um, re surgence of human herpes virus six that's latent in our DNA. There are certain medications that will do that. Minocycline is one of them. And so you can have a virus that's latent in your genome that then a certain medication will turn back on again and it'll start transcribing and all of a sudden you'll have an active viral replication in your body. And so it's a really complicated thing. I am Almost always making a clinical diagnosis. About the only time I do um, a culture would be uh, I'll I'll do a PCR for like HSV or v- or varicella if I'm worried about that. So I think on the, would I draw labs or get a UA on the petechial rash to rule out other entities? So I think that that's a really good question. And the in that case, in those cases that are so. Uh, Morphologically viral, I take a good history. I I do ask patients, have you noticed any, you know, are you having issues with, uh, with your GI tract, diarrhea, anything like that? Have you noticed any change in the color of your urine? And I would certainly, anybody that I was worried about, I would lab up. In general, no. If I, the, the morphology of those sort of petechial purpuric rashes, it's not like I've seen a lot of those patients, but in the ones that I've seen, they're not really sick. They, ju- they don't seem terribly ill. They're not toxic. Like, I'm not, I don't, so it's another example like those serum sickness-like reaction kids where you walk in the room and you're taken aback by the rash, but then the patient's just sitting there kind of happily talking to you. And so, um, I I think that, in general, I would say no, I'm not. I'm not doing any major lab work unless I have some other reason to be concerned. Best Peds Derm textbook. Um, Any of the ones that I contribute to? Uh. No, I don't, um, so I think it depends on, honestly, it depends on what you're going for. There's a number of different derm texts out there. I have a little bit of bias, but the, the standard clinical one is called Hurwitz' Textbook of Pediatric Dermatology. It's written by two of the people that taught me. And I think in terms of, it's sort of like the, oh, um, Andrews of pediatric dermatology or the Habif. And so that one sort of balances, you know, lots of clinical stuff with uh, a manageable size. How many vaccine related serious side effects or death did you encounter during your practice? I have, so in my practice, none. Um, however, and, and now I've seen some mild vaccine side effects, but nothing severe. I will say, though, on a personal note, I do have a, a friend um, who I've known for many, many years who, whose brother had what was thought to be a very severe reaction to the MMR vaccine and did pass away back in the, this would have been probably in the 80s. So, I mean, uh, I don't know the details on that, but I do know that I do know that, that was thought to be related to it. Has there been any research on the possibility of concurrent or daisy, yeah, good, I think we hit that one, I'm so, so glad somebody wrote that, it's- urticaria meldoforma. do I eventually refer to peds or allergies to rechallenge to the drug? Not routinely, no, I just, I, I, I mean, if there's some compelling reason to do so, I guess I would, but the, you know, the data on that in terms of drug rechallenge and the accuracy of that's pretty pretty wishy-washy based on my understanding so in in reality no matter what you do you're probably going to be left in this gray zone of having to say you know I, what I tell families the way I leave it with them I explain this whole thing in a little bit simpler way than I've explained it to you and I say you know I, the bottom line is they're probably not allergic we've got a lot of different antibiotic choices so if you don't have to use amoxicillin then maybe try you know use something different but if there's ever a time where the child is deathly ill and the only drug that they that will work is amoxicillin I would have no problem giving the child amoxicillin I would just watch them closely some years ago I found a reference it was hard for me to tell how good it really was, how good of a study it really was, that had looked at re-exposure in scenarios kind of like these serum sickness-like reactions, and the recurrence rate was quite low in the 30% or less. MMR, if a child has an MMR vaccine reaction, if a child has had a reaction to an immunization, well, he should get the rash game with subsequent injections in the series, okay, yeah, I would say yes. And my daughter is a good test case. She's had it since and has done just fine. In fact, I'm not sure anything happened the, the, the next time. So um, again, I guess it depends on the reaction. I mean, obviously, if it's one of these, like fever and a rash, where it's the actual vaccine strain of measles, I think you're OK. Obviously, if the child's having a true allergic reaction to something in the vaccine, that's a different story. But great, great questions. Thanks. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.